Our sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let me invite you to turn there with me. Uh, That's page 953 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. If you're here this morning and you're new to Christianity, or if you're new to the Bible, uh, if you turn to page 953, you'll see that the big numbers there in the text are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses. We're going to pick up chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let me read this for us. The Apostle Paul writes, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you told us when you were here on earth that you are the light of the world. We pray now as we turn to your word that you would shine your light into our hearts so that darkness might be dispelled, so that life might grow up, and so that we would know the freedom of knowing you and loving you. Do this by your spirit, Lord, we pray. Amen. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, tells a story of when he was in high school. Uh, Maybe you can relate to it. He's at the end of the year award ceremony, sitting in the high school auditorium. And the whole student body is there, along with their parents, and the school is giving out all sorts of awards for achievement and attendance and all that sort of thing. And then they come to the big award for his class, one of the highest honors for his grade. And Welch, sitting there in the seat, knew that he had a shot at winning this award. And the presenter, the principal or someone like that, started describing the student who's receiving the award this year without mentioning their name. And the description, it turned out, sounded a lot like him. But his heart started beating. And inside he was thinking, oh please, don't be me. Don't be me. Don't call my name. I don't want to have to get up in front of everyone. He's sitting there dreading the thought of hearing his name. And then they announce the winner, and it turns out it's not him. Some other kid in the class. And immediately, though, rather than sighing in relief, he described how he sat in that auditorium growing increasingly angry and upset deflated and embarrassed that he didn't get the award. And in this book, written obviously decades later, he reflects a little bit on what was going on in his heart back then. Why did he have such opposite reactions in that moment? 
And insightfully, he says, it's because his heart and because our hearts are so often controlled by the approval of other people. What the Bible calls in many places, the fear of man. You see, at first he didn't want to win the award because he was afraid that other people, his classmates would think he was some kind of nerd for winning this academic award or they'd make fun of how he looked when he walked up on stage. But then after he didn't win, he was still being controlled by other people's approval, by what others thought. Other kids knew he was up for the award and he lost. They must think he's a total loser. And now everyone was all excited for the other kid and he wanted that approval. He wanted that accolade. He wanted that commendation. Now maybe you can't relate to that particular high school story. But my guess is that most of us, if not all of us, struggle with the same heart issue. That is being controlled, being determined, maybe even at times being enslaved by the approval, by the judgment of other people. You come home from the dinner party or some other social gathering and you can't stop thinking of whether you talked too much or said the wrong thing or maybe didn't wear the right clothes and it eats you up for the rest of the night and you can't stop obsessing over it. Or maybe you're constantly looking over your shoulder at work, anxious about what your coworkers think of the project you've been working on whether they think you've got what it takes to make it in your office or in your lab or in your field. You wonder what they're going to say about you and your work when you're not around. Or maybe it's just that nagging, pervasive sense that you're just not measuring up. You see the pictures online of the birthday party that your friend just threw for their three-year-old? And it makes you feel like a total mom failure. I mean, your kid's birthday party didn't have pony rides. Your kid's birthday party didn't have small batch handcrafted gourmet ice cream from a specialty shop in Brooklyn served in antique green glass bowls. Each one hung with a little chalkboard with each kid's name on it. I mean, your kids are probably going to grow up to hate you. But on a serious note, do you have that nagging sense that you're just not measuring up? That if people really saw you, what they'd see is that you're just a failure. That someone else would probably do a better job, whatever it is your job might be, spouse, parent, employee, church member. In all these instances at the heart level, are we not being controlled hemmed in, determined, even devastated by others' approval. What other people are thinking of me. Is that not something we all struggle with? And if you're still thinking that this isn't a problem for you, reflect for a moment about how you're doing in, say, evangelism. How many of us Christians could honestly say that we don't wrestle with what our friends or neighbors would think of us if we talk to them about Christ? 
Human approval is something we all struggle with. We all wrestle to some extent with what people think of us, with others' opinions, with others' judgment of us. And we all wrestle with the fact that human approval can control what we feel and think and say and do. Whether it's sitting in a high school auditorium fuming with anger and resentment or never taking the opportunity to speak about Christ with our friends, human approval controls us. But in the face of this seemingly universal problem, our text this morning shows us that there's a way to be free. Do you notice what Paul said in verse 3? Look there again. But with me, Paul says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know that Paul wrote this letter to a church that was riddled with divisions. It seems the Christians in Corinth were splitting up over which Christian teacher was their favorite. They were treating them like celebrities and pitting them against each other based on their allegiance to one leader over the other. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, they were saying. And it seems that that part of the standard that they were using to determine which leader was best were the standards of ancient rhetoric and oratory. Because you see, flashy verbal fireworks drew a crowd. It drew a following in the world of Corinth. They became celebrities. And though the men and women Paul was writing to had come to trust in Jesus, it seems they were still clinging to those worldly standards and values of what made someone really great, of what made someone really worth listening to. And it seems that many of the Corinthians had then judged Paul's ministry by these prevailing rhetorical, oratorical, celebrity standards of the day. They judged him by these standards and they found him wanting. Paul didn't measure up. Now imagine for a moment how you might respond if you were Paul. At first, perhaps a little angry or hurt. I mean, you were the first one to tell these people about Jesus in the first place, right? But then maybe you'd start to second guess whether you'd made some mistake in how you handled things and how you presented yourself while you were there. Maybe you could make another visit to try to win some of them over. Maybe you could try to show them that you can be a little flashy too. Maybe you try to improve their opinion of you, try to win their favor. But look at Paul's response in verse 3. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He's not crushed. He's not second-guessing himself. He's not worried that he's an apostolic failure. He's not anxious that he didn't keep their approval. Their judgment, he says, is a very small thing to him. Now, of course, you read verse 3 for the first time, and it sounds like an incredibly proud thing to say, doesn't it? It sounds like he's saying, look, I don't care what you think. It sounds like he's dismissing them, right, with the most sophomoric of retorts ever spoken. You can't judge me. But in fact, that's not the tone. And that's not what Paul's saying here. 
Keep reading. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself. And he goes on to say, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's not doing what you and I almost instinctively do. When, when we feel that our hearts are being controlled by what other people think or by their approval, how do, we, how do we naturally, almost instinctively try to get out of it? Well, usually by saying that the only opinion that really matters isn't what you think of me, but what I think of me. I'm the only one who can really say whether I'm measuring up. So instead of others sitting in the judge's seat, we sit in judgment over ourselves. But the problem is, that move doesn't really work, does it? I see this in my own life. When I say to myself, I'm so sick and tired of living for others' approval, it's only what I think that really matters. One of two things always happens. I either live up to my own standards, and then I become proud and dismissive of others and at times pretty unsympathetic to other shortcomings. After all, I'm living up to my standards. Or I don't live up to my own standards and I'm just as crushed and dejected as I was when I lived on the approval of others. You see, to make that move that we all make to say, I'll be my own judge, not you, doesn't get you out of the cycle. You're on the same roller coaster as when you lived on the approval of others. If you get it, you feel great for a while. But if you keep getting it, you feel proud and above everybody else. But if you don't get it, you crash and feel awful. That's how it is with others' approval, when others are your judge. But it's no different when you live on the approval of yourself. When you get it, you become proud. When you lose it, you despair. But Paul, strikingly here, on the one hand says, your judgment isn't ultimate for me. But then in the next breath, he says, my judgment isn't ultimate for me. He's found something that has set him free from the tyranny, both of the judgment of others and of the judgment of self. So what is it? I think for most of us today, his answer is pretty counterintuitive. Look at the end of verse 4. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. And here it is. It's the Lord who judges me. Now what is Paul saying here? What is this text showing us? It's showing us this. That you'll only be truly free from the judgment of others and self when you know that you're accountable to a greater judge. You'll only be truly free from the judgment of others and self when you know that you're accountable to a greater judge. Only when someone weightier comes into view will the other voices be displaced. A young cellist giving her first collegiate recital may be anxious to hear what her friends think or what her instructors think. She may even be her own toughest critic, but if a truly great cellist walked into the room, 
If Yo-Yo Ma came in, sat in the front row, listened intently to the whole performance, and approached her afterwards, wouldn't every other judgment be but a very small thing in comparison? Of course. No one else would have that same authority or that same ability to judge Rightly and justly and truly. And you see, when it comes, friends, to the world, and when it comes to each of our lives as a whole, there is one who has the greatest authority and has the greatest ability to truly judge. Paul says in verse 1 that the Corinthians should regard him and other Christian teachers and leaders as servants of Christ and stewards, that is, household managers of the mysteries, that is, the richness of the gospel, the mysteries of God. In other words, he's saying God is the one who gave Paul his ministry. Therefore, God alone has the ultimate authority to judge Paul's work and not the Corinthians. A household manager, a steward in the ancient world, was accountable at the end of the day, not to anyone in the household, but to the owner of the household, the one to whom everything belonged. Only the owner had authority to judge the steward's work because it was all his, and indeed he did have that authority. Like a steward, Paul had his ministry from God, and so God has the ultimate authority to judge his ministry. But you know, even though we're not apostles like Paul, the same is true for each one of us. God is the creator of all things, the giver and owner of everything that we see. Every leaf that falls from every tree and every brick of every building we make, all things come from him and all things belong to him. And as human beings, we're created in God's image as his image bearers with the awesome dignity to keep and to tend, to steward this world and our lives according to God's purposes and God's plans because everything comes from him. Because God has created the world and us within it. And because of that, he has the authority to judge. He is in the position. He has the right to declare whether or not something is in line with the purpose for which it was made. So God has the authority to judge above all else, but God also has the ability to judge above all else. In verse five, Paul says, God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Friends, God can see what you and I cannot see. We are fallible judges with limited knowledge and limited perspective, but God is different. God knows every circumstance, every motivation, every desire behind every act you and I have or will ever make. Nothing escapes his scrutiny. Down to the movement of every subatomic particle and down to the thought and intention of every human heart. 
And of course, that makes God the perfect judge, doesn't it? The utterly just judge who can and who will render the most perfect, complete verdict. So how was Paul able to be free from the judgment of others and even the judgment that he gave of his own self? Because he knew he was accountable to a greater judge, the Lord the one whose authority and ability to judge made every other judgment a very small thing. But that creates a bit of a problem, doesn't it? If all this is true of God, that we stand before him as the one who has the complete authority and the ability to judge us perfectly and justly, how in the world is that good news? In fact, how is that not at the end of the day, really, really bad news. Yes, it liberates us from a concern of what others think, but it seems to put us in an even worse position. How does that not take us out of the proverbial frying pan only to face the fire? How could we stand before such a judge? One from whom we cannot conceal our flaws or our sins or our desires like we can conceal them from every other human court. If God were to take a perfect account of our lives, yes, it would silence every other merely human judgment. But what would it replace it with? Something surely more unbearable if God is as perfect and just and exposing as he must be if he is the awesome creator and sustainer of all things. But it's here. And maybe for the first time, perhaps only here, that we start to see how Christianity is such radically good news. You see, Paul is confident in verse 5, that he will receive not condemnation, but commendation. That the verdict of God, the perfectly just and holy judge over his life, will be one of approval. That on the great day of judgment, when God puts an end to all evil and all injustice in this world gone horribly wrong, when the world stands before the bar of its creator and the gavel will fall, Paul knows that he'll be pronounced innocent. How? Will it be because Paul lived such a good life? Will it be because Paul, well, he tried his best? No. He says so himself. Look again at verse 4. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's not Paul's record and not his performance and not because we tried our best that God will accept us. None of that could ever be good enough. No, something else must be the ground of his acquittal. He knows that we have to be approved not on the basis of our own record, but on the record of another. And friends, this is exactly what the gospel, what Christianity is all about. 
that when we had done nothing to deserve God's commendation and done everything to deserve God's condemnation, in love, God sent his son. Jesus Christ lived his whole life on earth under the favor of the Father's commendation. At Jesus' baptism, do you remember? The Father's voice said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And his life lived that out. But in the end, Jesus gave that up on the cross. And hanging there, he suffered the condemnation that our sins deserve. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. Condemnation. He bore the sentence for our sin so that our verdict could be reversed. And now when anyone places their trust in the risen Lord Jesus, immediately their guilty sentence is erased. Because he bore that sentence. And they're credited with Jesus' perfect Record and they receive the Father's full commendation. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And now we see the whole way to the bottom, don't we? Now we see why Paul wasn't shaken or controlled by the judgment or opinions others had of him or that he even had of himself. He had the approval of the greatest judge. He had the verdict of the highest Court. He had the approval of the eternal Lord Jesus who loved him and gave himself for him. And friend, that's the only thing that will free you. It's the only thing that will free you. Only when you see that there's a greater judge with whom we have to do. And only when you see that Jesus is the only ground of your approval then you'll be free. Free from the tyranny of self-approval and free from the tyranny of others' approval. And when you get that, when you really get that, it'll change you. Perhaps the first thing you'll find is suddenly being faithful becomes sweeter and more desirable to you than being liked. In verse 2, Paul says that what really counts for a steward is that they're found faithful. That they do what the owner of the household has instructed them to do and has entrusted them to do. And when you see, friends, that the owner of all things has given up his greatest treasure for you and he's opened the storehouses of his eternal grace and mercy and given you a seat at his table as a family member, you will find that you want to be faithful to him and you'll want to obey him and you'll want to do so even though it might mean losing some of the approval of your peers. What would that loss be in comparison to what you already have in him? It'll make you want to be faithful. Another way in which this will change you is that you actually become a person who's more open to correction and rebuke. That might seem a bit counterintuitive at first. How could knowing I'm sort of not ultimately susceptible to the judgment of others make me more open to their correction? But think of it this way. Friend, if you live on the approval of others then don't you see that any corrective word or any rebuke 
is going to totally crush you. You won't really be able to receive the correction well because any rebuke will feel like you've had the wind knocked out of your sails. They're taking from you the one thing that you absolutely have to have. And so you'll get defensive and not really listen. Or you'll fall into self-loathing and beat yourself up and be paralyzed to make any kind of change. But if you know the approval of God in Christ, if you're secure in that, if you know that the Lord is your ultimate judge and he's accepted you in Christ, then correction and rebuke and criticism won't and can't destroy your sense of worth and well-being. You'll actually be glad and open to receiving correction because you'll want to get as much help as you can to become more and more like Jesus, like the one that God wants you to be like. Of course, rebukes are still going to sting, right? No one walks around saying, please rebuke me. But when they come, and we all need them you'll be able to receive them for your good. You know, one of the primary ways you can tell that the gospel hasn't really gone deep into someone's heart is if they aren't open to loving correction from a brother or sister in Christ. Let me mention one last way this truth will change us. When you know that your approval comes from outside of yourself, that it comes from Christ and it's not your own doing, it's going to create in you a kind of character that is gentle and strong at the same time. Because on the one hand, what you have is something you don't deserve. And that will make you a very gentle person, you see. You won't be proud or judgmental. You'll be humble and you'll be understanding. After all, it's not your performance that saves you. It's Christ's. But at the same time, because your approval in him is utterly secure, it's going to make you a strong person. You're not going to fear ultimately what other people think. You're not going to fear correction or rebuke. You'll be able to hold your convictions with confidence. You'll be able to be bold when you need to be. And the beauty of it all is that you'll be able to be both at once. There'll be strength in your gentleness And there will be gentleness in your strength. And friends, I don't know about you, but I think the world needs a lot more people who are like that. And so instead of worrying what people think of you after the social gathering, instead of being controlled by the opinions of your colleagues at work, instead of beating yourself up over whether or not you're an all-star parent, instead of all that, do you see what you have or what you can have in Christ? That you can live in the freedom of knowing that the one true judge has justified you. And that the verdict has been spoken in your favor and that it cannot be revoked and that no other judgment can shake you. Friends, do you have that? If you're in Christ, you do. And if you're not, you can come and receive it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take this truth, that our approval comes not of our own performance or our own merits, but comes because of what you've done for us. Lord, would you take that beautiful truth by your Spirit and bury it deep in our hearts? And would you free us, Lord, from the way in which we crave and are controlled by the approval of others? And Lord Jesus, would you make us more and more people like yourself? Jesus, you were bold and you were gentle. You were strong and you were caring. Oh Lord, make us, your church, more and more like that. Lord, not ultimately for our sake, but for your sake. So that the world might see and know how beautiful you are, God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.